So I was like, what is in your biscuits? Hello and welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show. Our guest for this episode is Christian Hallman, a geek and hacker by heart. You can be found on Twitter at CodePoets, that's C-O-D-E-P-O-8, and blogs at ChristianHallman.com. He currently sports the fashionable job title International Developer Evangelist, spending his time going from conference to conference and university to university to speak and train people on systems provided by Yahoo and other web companies that want to make this web thing work really well for everybody. In this episode, we talk with Christian about usability, accessibility, running a web conference, tips on becoming an evangelist, and mailing floppy disks around the world. At the end, we pour one out for Google Reader. Your hosts for this episode are Christopher Schmidt and Sam Kapp. Christopher and the Environments for Humans crew have a new online conference for you to check out, the Digital Biz Summit, which is coming August 20th. Tickets are available over at environmentsforhumans.com. And of course, you can pick up his book, Designing Web and Mobile Graphics, sold at dwmgbook.com and from the back of an unmarked van behind the building where Barnes Noble used to be. Sam Cap is a design educator and designer in Austin, Texas, and she's also the co-host of the ATX Web Show, a podcast available at atxwebshow.com. All this can be found on our webpage at nonbreakingspace.tv. Thanks for listening to this show. If you love it, please give us a rating on iTunes or leave a note there. Christopher has been dying in the Texas heat, and the only thing that reminds him to drink water is a five-star review on iTunes. Enjoy the show. Well, um, we're just going to just start talking. Like we've already, we've already started hit the core button, but uh, but yeah, we just wanted to just talk to you and say like you know how you got into the industry and just take it from there and so cool. that. So cool. But yeah, but we're honored that you're that you're with us um, and to share some time. I know we, uh, you're busy, extremely busy, and running around doing a lot of things because like last time we talked to Barcelona, you were like. Uh, the next four weeks, I'm going to be on the road, and uh, I was like, "Okay, that's that is amazingly crazy." So, but um, but yeah, just uh, how did you get into the industry and into the web, and 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 uh, what were you doing beforehand? If you were doing anything beforehand, okay. Well, uh, I think it's I'm a product from my environment. Like uh, I grew up in a small village, and my family has always been workers. So my dad's a coal miner, and then everybody worked in the same factory. So when I realized that I'm uh, uh, that I like reading books and I like doing things and I don't want to do the same things, I started finding ways to get out of this world really early on. So the computers, when I was a kid, like born in 1975, and when there was something on television that was computer generated, I was like, "This is so cool!" You know, <laughs> like Tron and these kind of things. Yeah. And uh, then I basically I I jobbed as a bricklayer to to get my first computer and it was a Thomson T0770 with Microsoft Basic One Zero, and it didn't have any means of storing data. So mm-hmm. every day I would write my own graphics program and start painting with uh, moving my up up down left right and then couldn't store it. So when it was time to go to bed, I had to turn it off and start writing the same program next day. And wow. so I learned step by step to do these things. And then I got myself into a Commodore sixty four, and uh, that was still the best computer ever. <laughs> and um, started learning by uh, by writing trainers for my games that I got from other people to give myself unlimited lives. That's how I learned assembly language. Mm. And then I started writing games and having a small company, well, a small, uh, a, a few games released out there and we worked on some copy protection stuff because we were the ones that, were, that got around the old copy protection so they hired us to write better. 
And then uh, um, in, in school, I just got my A-levels. And then I started working as a radio uh, journalist and uh, an audio producer because that was the thing in town. It was the only media available. And then in 1996, I found the internet. And I'm like, this is as cool as sending floppy disks around worldwide or going to, uh, to mailboxes or BBSs. Are you kidding me? Everybody can do it, you know? <laughs> like, like nothing is cooler than mailing floppy disks yeah. around the world. I, I, just, I get a buzz. <laughs> <laughs> when I just drop them in the mailbox and uh, just knowing that someone on the other end has no idea what a floppy disk is. So I- yeah. <laughs> and then I basically started building my first website uh, and realized that people want that. So uh, BMW uh, emailed me and basically hunted me to build their internet for them or be part of that internet project because I was the one guy that knew HTML in my area. Oh wow! And after I data my on my account, then on my CV, I could start working in all kind of different agencies. So mm-hmm. I, I came to the web as a way as a way out, and that's what I still see it. I still see it as this wonderful, wonderful media mm-hmm. that anybody can be part of, and you don't have to be a celebrity or spend a lot of money to get a voice on it. Mm-hmm. And especially now, this is going to be the next step of the internet as well. We're getting very excited about the Western world and how cool it is. And sometimes it's even connected, not necessarily New York hotels. <laughs> but the, the next interesting step for me on the web will be to connect all these people in countries that don't have coolest, newest technology, but have a lot of interesting things to say and a lot of interesting things to say about their governments as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it's up to us to enable them to be part of the web rather than like blocking them out with making it dependent on very expensive hardware and specialist okay. equipment. Right. Well, you're, you're kind of alluding to, like, you know, and I don't think you're alluding that much, but uh, to, like, iOS and, and hardware, like, Android 2 or something like that, and and as, like, barriers for, for people to get online. And, um, and, uh, and, the, and I guess, and how Firefox OS is going to help that problem, is, is that right? Well, that's one thing of doing it, but I think it goes even further. I mean, like every time you make your website work only in one browser and in the cool resolutions that you have on your big screens, you're hurting people. You're blocking people out. Every time you make a menu only available for the mouse, you're blocking out people who can't use a mouse who are blind. Mm-hmm. Like it's, uh, we, we forgot uh, a bit about the accessibility of the web and making it available for everybody by making it shiny and making it wonderful. I mean, like I've seen so many uh, parallax scrolling websites right now with several megabytes of data that really tell a story of like five lines written properly as well. I think we forgot about the power of text and the power of words because Okay. If I put things on the web with words, I can take a browser and translate them into my language. If these words are inside a graphic, I can't do anything. Right. And that's what a lot of people forget that like we, we make it as shiny as possible and as beautiful as possible and not as usable as possible. So mm-hmm. when I'm on my mobile device and I got a slow connectivity and it's still a $600, $700 device, I don't want to get a bad experience. That's just developers being lazy if that happens. Right. So, you, I mean, you still see people... Like put text and graphics because like we have like embeddable embedded fonts now. Like you can get like you know Google fonts to uh, Typekit from Adobe and stuff like that. So 
Like, yeah, I still see it. I mean, like, I still see it on the bleeding edge as well. I'm, I'm speaking at CentraCon in two days in Miami, and they asked me to give this talk about the inspiring talk about the future of the internet and what cool technologies we have. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the cool new stuff that we get excited about, like CSS filters and CSS regions and exclusions, to me are just uh, there for uh, uh, for tablets. They're just interesting to do print layouts and put mm-hmm. them on the web again. And this, to me, is a step back because that's what we told our designers for years and years that this is not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it just we just don't get out of this uh, little corner of making everything work everywhere the same, rather than just designing for flexibility. I know it's hard to get your head around and I know there's a lot of psychology involved in good print design and good typography and good kerning and good lines and everything but we just cannot. We cannot control what people do with our stuff on the web and this is to me the beautiful thing about it. I don't have to worry about it but we keep we keep burning uh, burning ourselves by doing it fixed to one environment and then we wonder when a year later it doesn't look good anymore. I mean, I've, I've written horrible things in 1997, 1998 that I'm not proud of, but <laughs> that HTML still works nowadays because yeah. it just was a 100% table layout that still is flexible enough to work on the mobile and on the desktop because I didn't expect a 1024 resolution. Right. Like, well, you said, you talked about like CSS filters and... Um, layouts and stuff like that, but like wouldn't that? I mean, like, that's the whole point of CSS, right? The cascade, right? So like you can just and responsive web design. So if you build uh, media queries and stuff like that, like you know, like let's say it's like to, to go to your your you know, I guess your your argument, if you will, not your argument, but just your hypothetical, like a uh, building for just a tablet. Like you can just say like, hey, I'm building this site, and if you happen to have CSS filters, you can make this image you know better than you know intended. But if not, just Deliver the the vanilla, you know, or ice cream, if you will, um, version of the uh, the photo, right? And it, it, isn't that like a good? Isn't that the nature of the web? And is that like how? Yes, very much. It's sadly enough the not the nature of our design processes at the moment because we designed the beautiful thing for the iPad too, and this is what the client wants to see and what the client pays for, and we just think of the fallback as you say the beautiful thing that works everywhere mm-hmm. as an afterthought and most of the time we run out of time and cannot build this anymore mm-hmm. we should start thinking about the other way around which is much harder to sell to clients mm-hmm. but at the same time much better for the web and I mean that's why I work for Mozilla and not a, another company it's like I, I am this kind of hippie that wants to give people what they need rather than people what the client says that they think they need and a lot of it is just basically print layouts for the web. And this is just sad that we haven't evolved past this or that our self-assurance uh, as designers and developers doesn't allow us to stand up to clients and say, like, this is, okay, this is beautiful, but this is not what your end users need. This is what you think that they need. Mm-hmm. And we should sometimes just say no to that. And uh, I, I think when people tell me that they, oh, well, you're, you're well off because you get paid by a company that can do that for you. And then I look at the job market and you're like, so could you because <laughs> you get job offers every day right now. Mm-hmm. There's not enough developers for the work out there. So I think it's time we stand up a bit for our uh, beliefs and our quality thinking as well. I mean, you wouldn't get a, um, you wouldn't get a plumber to come into your house and you tell them like, hey, I've got these old rusty pipes here and I want them to reuse them. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't do that. But designers have to deal with these kind of things the whole time. Yeah, yeah I, I just feel like, yeah, I definitely feel like there's like, you know, the buzz has, has gone towards making native apps um, for, for phones. That. So that's where, 
love you bar but uh and um i guess you know just we should just make sure like you know, you're an evangelist for firefox is that right is there is, is that well, it's efficient html5 and the open web and yeah, in this case in my case right now it's a lot of work with firefox os because mm -hmm. this is the uh the the war declaration of the mobile web so to say <laughs> it's uh it's basically the mobile web came out as a get, as a great opportunity and uh, a certain fruit company from california went up on stage and said there is uh, there is no sdk you don't need to know any other language than html safari is the browser it does everything that you need and then a month later out of a sudden we realized it doesn't give us what we what we need mm -hmm. and as developers as web developers we were pushed into a uh, into a second citizenship again on this pla on these platforms and that's why firefox os is now saying hey here's html5 here's open standard proposals for all the apis to access all the hardware mm -hmm. that every other browser can do as well mm -hmm. and we just sold it in spain we just yet yeah, today we started selling it in poland Oh, wow. uh, Greece, Germany, and others are coming next with Deutsche Telekom as the partner, and uh, the the partner in Spain is Telefonica. South America is going to come next, so we are out to replace uh, feature phones. So we didn't say we want to replace iOS, we want to replace Android, because they're in a market where people are happy with it. Uh -huh. They're in a market where they spend a lot of marketing money to give people the impression that they need a new iPhone, even if they were incredibly happy with their old iPhone a week ago. Uh -huh. So that's nothing we can compete with, but we can bring the web to people who don't have it yet, and that's why we needed a platform for that, and that's what we do with Firefox OS. And for developers, it means you don't need to learn anything new. You do a website in HTML5, you put a manifest file on it, you get access to the hardware with certain APIs that are just JavaScript calls that look very much like jQuery. Mm -hmm. And uh, we give you the freedom to actually access the hardware that nobody else does. And that, to me, was the crazy thing when two years ago we started with an empty repository and people said, let's do this. And I'm like, this is going to be an uphill battle. And now I see the phones in people's hands and I'm like, this is incredible that we managed to pull that off, and <laughs> I I can only see that others are coming coming after us. Like I'm, I can see Chrome OS going further and slower in in markets. I wouldn't be surprised if a Chrome OS phone comes out sooner or later. And I always like the question with like, oh yeah, so that's business model of Firefox OS is going for the market that nobody else is. So what do you do when 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 Apple goes to South America as well? And my answer is then we've won because our main job is to bring the web to people. We're a non-for-profit organization. So if we can shame or inspire commercial <laughs> companies into doing the same thing, mm -hmm. I'm happy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the thing was like um when when Steve Jobs walked on there and introduced the the, the iPhone, he's like, "Yeah, we just need to have um, you know a website that's coded correctly, and you're ready to go." You know, and I was just like, "Awesome!" And then then my industry, like some people in the industry, like now I've designed for the iPhone. I'm like, "What do you mean you have to design for the iPhone? You can just pull up your web page and you're done." <laughs> so. Um, it's quite it's quite funny because we get so excited about the hardware, isn't it? I mean, as a web developer of old, I never knew what people use, and I've seen terrible computers that I wouldn't touch, but they're still in use. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and nowadays, I see so many developers, especially Firefox OS, tell me, "Oh, I would love to start building for Firefox OS, but I I have to get a phone first. And you're like, "Since when was web development about having the hardware first and then then writing the code? This was right. never the idea of the web." Right. It was born as a platform independent of the hardware. Right. And now we bring it back to the hardware because it's easier to market and it's easier to make outdated. 
Mm. Like you cannot make the web outdated, but you can make a, a, a handset outdated. Mm. And if you can't make a handset outdated, then you don't make money. Mm. It's all about consumption. And that's something I would love to break as well. But that's uh, a longer goal of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I think I remember, was it, I think Nathan Smith was talking about this at HTML uh, 5TX. Chris, I think you also spoke that weekend. And he's saying just in March of 2013, eight devices with eight different sizes came out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's impossible to even try to get everything set to every single size. It's yeah, just, it's it also doesn't make it doesn't make a good experience. You know, it's like uh, there's the whole mobile first approach where you make everything for 320 phone with like big buttons and then you just scale it up and show more content for others, but on the desktop I don't want these massive buttons. I want different environments. So it's it's a matter of thinking about the context of your design as well, not necessarily just about the size of the screen. I agree. And the real horror comes when now, when now Windows 8 becomes more successful and the tablets are coming out there, which is beautiful, beautiful hardware and really cool things. But all of them are hybrid touch and mouse devices. So you cannot just design for touch or design for mouse because they're both. So that's a big, big challenge in technology. And I think the pointer event specification that Microsoft has brought out and they gave to, uh, to WebKit and now they also gave to Firefox is a very interesting approach that as a developer, I don't need to know what input device you have. I just get it told by the browser that something touched the screen or something moved the mouse. Because it's just a race that we can't win because the next interactions will be uh, will be blinking your eye or uh, breathing in or whatever. I mean, there's, there's so many opportunities with like uh, wearable computing and Google Glass and these kind of things that we can't even think of yet. So yeah, I, like the only time I've, I've, I've like just talked on the, the phone, but like yeah, the only time I've had a chance to, to touch the Firefox phone was like when you handed it to me for like five minutes at uh, in Barcelona. I was like, like wow, this is awesome. So is, is this phone on sale in America yet or North America? Uh, well, there's geeksphone.com, which has uh, developer preview phones. So these are the same specifications as the phones that that our partners are selling in the markets. Mm -hmm. So you can pre-order there. Uh, sadly enough, well, not sadly enough, actually quite surprisingly enough, they were sold out within two days yeah. because so many developers wanted to have one. Yeah. So now they're actually making new ones. So this is another possibility. Mm -hmm. Another option is if you have an old Android device, then you can actually flash Firefox OS on them, onto some of them. We can't do it for all of them because we don't have access to the drivers because they're not open source. Mm -hmm. But uh, that will give you the problem that the phone will have a different specification from the phones that people will have. But just right. for running it and playing with it, it's a, it's a total possibility to uh, repurpose an old Nexus S or Nexus S2. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another big opportunity for Firefox OS that we're going into as well to actually liberate old Android hardware and allow it to have new HTML5 features rather than just not getting Android upgrades any longer. Oh, wow. That's, awesome. that's another problem, that old, old hardware doesn't get the newest operating systems. And to me, that's a bit of a, uh, a real annoyance as well because yeah. with, like, uh, with like Windows and stuff, it never told me your computer is too slow. Yeah. Only in some, uh, now with Windows 8, but before that, it never did. Again, it's it's... It's pushing people into more consumption rather than just allowing people to reuse old hardware that is still good enough. Right. And well, it just irks me. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can see I can see that. So um 
Yeah, I could definitely see like a service where like the you know, um, where you just convert old phones to Firefox, and, and that'd be that'd be pretty pretty awesome to do. Because like I have a small like device library just from the devices I I, I purchased over the last few years, and so it's like. You know, with Android not getting onto all the new phones, like you know, some writers just not updating the new their 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 flavor of Android. It just you know, the phones just come quickly outdated and kind of hard to use. So, and uh, yeah, I just yeah, that'd be, that's awesome. That's that'd be a great niche service. For I think the market that will do that automatically is India. When you go to India, it's absolutely hilarious how many little corner shops you find that know how to fix any phone by reverse engineering it and finding things on the web how to do it. Yes. Um, there's a great TED talk about this, how they actually gave people like an old phone and a flashlight and a battery and some, project, uh, some lens or something like that. And they built these little portable projectors for teachers that go into the rural countryside of, of India and start teaching children by showing them videos from a, uh, from a USB stick. And that's the kind of tinkering that we lost in the Western world. And um, I think this is where Africa and India is becoming very, very interesting. We've got all these maker movements in America right now. Mm-hmm. They do that for a living. And this is a really good <laughs> bit about this. There's never a, this doesn't work. It's like, we make it work. Yeah. I guess it's with us as well. Our, our grandparents and our parents knew how to repair all the things that they had. We mm-hmm. don't do that any longer. We just go to the shop and get talked to by a genius that we don't know anything. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah, like, well, like it's it's part of like our economy is like, well, do I spend the time to fix it or do I go to a store where it's like relatively cheap to buy a replacement for cheaper quality of it? So, so it's you know, that, that yeah. trade off. So, I don't know. I can only see that as an interesting thing for us as designers and developers because um, the flexibility that we have, nobody ever else had. I mean, like, uh, I used to dabble as well in game development and having to wait for the new SDK from game companies coming up before you can even start with your next game. Yeah. That was just not fun for me. Um, I don't want to be hindered by something from the outside. I just want to write code, and that's what you can do on the web immediately. And especially nowadays with all the code sharing that we have with GitHub and like uh, CodePen and right. JS Fiddle and stuff, it's just gorgeous how much work you can can do with other people worldwide or have a 24-hour coverage by sending things to, uh, to the UK, uh, from the UK to India, from India to America. You can, you can build a website in, 20, uh, in 24 hours with three different engineers in different places. So time difference can work for us, but it normally works against us because we haven't quite embraced the idea of worldwide development yet. Mm-hmm. I do want to switch uh, switch gears a little bit and, and just talk about your role as as, as evangelist and um, and how did you become an evangelist? Like how's how's like how how that happened or? Well, I've been uh, I've been lead developer at uh, Yahoo at that time and um, I've got more and more invitations to actually speak at conferences because I've written a few books in my free time and I was blogging for a long time mm-hmm. and um, so I thought it was time for a change instead of being the guy that codes everything that he's done before that wasn't that exciting to me anymore I wanted to give my place to younger guys who want to prove themselves and do something new so I had to find a role for myself so I went into a, a front-end architecture role Mm-hmm. which is one of those excuse roles for uh, for technical people that don't want to become managers because uh, our HR grids basically say if you want to get that amount of money, you have to be a manager. You cannot be just an engineer, which is actually sad. Okay. So, I, uh, And I said, okay, I've got this background in publishing or this background in journalism, so 
uh, it would be interesting to mix the two. And then I just said, okay, uh, evangelists have been around for a long time, like Microsoft had them for a long time, but they were all product evangelists. So I said, I want to be a developer evangelist, which is this transition, tra uh, this uh, um, translation role between developers and uh, humans and uh, salespeople and these kind of things. So right now, a lot of companies work against each other in different departments. The salespeople promise things to clients that developers can't do, mm -hmm. and developers say no to things that they could do, but they're too lazy to do or they don't have time to do it. So that's where a developer evangelist comes in internally in a company, and externally it is about uh, uh, finding the right, the right uh, language for different markets and different audiences. So... I just basically wrote down what I've done over the years and published it as a handbook as de at developer-evangelism.com and people just went nuts for it and lots of companies asked us if we do trainings on those things as well. So I became a developer evangelist for uh, developer the developer network in Yahoo and when I joined Mozilla, I became the principal evangelist here so I could hire people to do the same job and uh, coach people. Right now, I'm actually coaching people on public speaking and blogging and writing and writing code examples that are easy to understand. Mm -hmm. So I'm basically crowdsourcing my own job so I don't have to travel all the time, which so far isn't working as well as I thought it would be. <laughs> but <laughs> that's because a lot of events want uh, certain names and not just a guy who knows things. So mm -hmm. I, I, I thought about dragging more people onto stage with me and introduce them that way. Mm -hmm. Um, to basically make it possible that way because a lot of conferences want to have speakers and don't have time or don't get speakers because others are busy so it's it's time to make that more um, diverse and more outreachable as well right. so I basically gave myself the role and uh, um, put it in my put it in my intranet specification and then we made an HR role out of it which is Funnily enough, in engineering companies, happening a lot of time. Like Steve Sauters, for example, the the uh, performance expert, called himself head of performance engineering in Yahoo as well, and then became it. Oh, so, in the past, it was dress for the job you want to have. I guess now, say what you do is the job that you want to have. So, like, and what, what's your feeling on conferences in general? Like, um, are they getting like? How do you feel about? Are they getting better or are they? It depends. I mean, sadly enough, a good conference uh, uh, that runs for years and years if you just make it a framework. Uh -huh. And a lot of them, I just flat out refuse to go. I mean, if it's a conference with like eight tracks and 400 speakers, then it's a waste of time for me because it just means that this is a networking opportunity for people. And that's where enterprise companies send their engineers instead of giving them training. So it's it's a money spinner, but it doesn't have any impact on the engineers or on the work that they do when they get back to their company. So um, I, I think the the uh, the unconference movement and uh, bar camps and stuff a few years ago tried to disrupt that. Uh -huh. It lost a bit of its bite because yeah. it's not that many. There's too many happening, and a lot of them are not unconferences. They just get like salespeople coming there and talking, rather than anybody who goes has to be a speaker as well. Right. And it's unknown speakers. Um, but in general, I think the quality of events is getting very, very much better about it. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are just too many at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking after budgets as well for sponsoring events. And we get like daily four or five. Yeah. And I'm just, what do you do with this? Like, where is the outcome of that? And you look at like meetup.com and you look at Lanyard and you see that in large, in large centers of engineering, there's lots and lots of things happening. And a lot of them are just veiled hiring uh, uh, events. 
and not really tech events. Mm. So I'd rather I'd rather see people go into areas where we're not that. I mean, just go into the Midwestern America, go to the north of England, go to Poland, go to places where there's not an event every day, mm-hmm. and do some cool events there. I mean, my my partner was at an event in Poland the other day, which was the mobile conference, and I didn't have time to go, and I heard about it too late, and she said that was one of the best organized things she's ever seen, and the whole conference was organized by Girl Geeks of Krakow, so it was like all female organizers that, that really pulled off an amazing conference with like lots and lots of known speakers that just wanted to go and support it. And that's how the best conferences, I think, started. They, they stand and fall with the organizers. Mm-hmm. If the organizers are very passionate about what they want to do, mm-hmm. then they actually do a good event. If the organizers are there for the money, then they actually are more annoying than anything else. The amount of very commercial conferences that I get that ask me for the slide deck seven weeks in advance and I'm like, I'm not do that. I write a news talk every single time yeah. for that conference, for that audience, for that moment in time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just expect you to have your talk that you've given at 50 other conferences and you give it again. And I'm like, what's the point of this? This is like a really bad rock band and not just uh, <laughs> inspire audiences to do other things. I mean, Web Visions was a good example where the Organizers are are passionate about doing what they do and uh, and going beyond the just make let's make another uh, let's make another tech event. I mean, it was just like Arduino hacking for kids, and it was all things that you didn't expect to happen. Yeah, that was that was yeah. the audience was mixed um, was mixed creatives and mixed engineers, and that's a very very important part. Yeah, that that was fun. like yeah. As a conference organizer myself, I tried hard to. Think of what people want to hear, what they um, what they don't know they need to hear, and um, and then try to find people who, you know, that people know, like you know, the rock stars, if you will, but also people who are up and coming. And it's it's really hard sometimes to like it's 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 a hard job. I mean, I think it's it's not fun a lot of times, but it's it's fun when people are there and they're learning and um, they you know the light bulb goes goes off. You know, I'm pretty sure Sam sees this in her class too. Like, it's really fun when things go right. So, um, you know, when you when you you spent all this time, all this months in planning, preparation, and just like, oh, it's fun here and it goes off. So, but um, it's but, just very sad how many people just love to just point out the one thing that's wrong about a conference and then rant about it on Twitter for like 20 hours and <laughs> and go there. Yeah. You know, it's like there's this there's this big, I don't know, it's a, it's a feeling of like, oh, I wasn't cool enough to go there, so I'm going to say it's crap. Mm-hmm. Or it's just, it's just sad how many people just think they have to, um, how do you say, profile themselves that way. And um, it's cat herding. I mean, like the more people you do an event for, the more uh, work you have. And that's why uh, I have a lot of respect for conference organizers that really do it well. I have less respect for conference organizers that charge $3,000 for tickets and then, then hire 12 different PR companies to do the different jobs and just uh, uh, like rack up lots and lots of paperwork for every speaker there rather than just having a good event. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know, man. I mean, for $3,000, man, you better like serve me some caviar or something. I don't know. I don't know what you <laughs> <laughs> then again, the, the, the worst is venues, isn't it? A lot of venues you get really cheap, but then you have to buy their catering. Yeah. And when I did my accessibility conference that I organized, I did a conference where I had a day of, develop, uh, a day of 
speakers with different disabilities, friends of mine, mm -hmm. going on stage and explaining how they actually use the web and how they get stuck at certain websites because they didn't do something sensibly or they, they made a barrier without knowing it. Mm -hmm. And on the second day, I had another hack day where I, where I had developers come in and use these barriers or this information with these barriers to build um, prototypes to work around these barriers that we then sent to these companies like Facebook and Twitter and all the others. And the venue I got for free, but the catering was just, just tea and biscuits, and that was like forty pound a person. Oh wow! So I was like, "What is in your biscuits? This is just <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to know. You really yeah. don't." So it's it's tricky to to get get everybody happy, but I guess you have to learn to take the the the, the shouting bad feedback with the ones that that say it was nice and. I found it with with, talk, with speaking as well. Like the feedback you get immediately after your talk is very polarized. Really, it's either oh it's awesome or that was terrible. Yeah. The terrible ones never come to you. They just put it on Twitter or something like right, that. Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting feedback comes like two weeks later when people wrote blog posts about like uh, what they learned or these kind of things. And it's really hard to find that information. So. Mm -hmm. Anybody listening to this podcast, if you have something nice to say about a speaker or a conference, please ping them directly because that's what we do it for. We don't do it for the money. We don't do it for the, well, not everybody. <laughs> we don't I, do it I for, do the, the, caviar, for the fame. Yeah. We do it for inspiring you to do something cool with what we talk about. Right. And if we learn that you became more successful in your, in your uh, endeavors or in your job, hmm. that actually gives me more than getting like $6,000 for that, for that talk. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things we do with our, our online summits and like we should, you know, with, and with our our face to face ones is that at the end of each one we say like, hey, you know, you know, because because public speaking is like, you know, it's up there in the top ten things people are stress stress about, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like which is great because we we move beyond like food and shelter people are concerned about, but it's like um, you know, there's like moving is a stressful thing, and then right behind that is like public speaking, and mm -hmm. um. And you know, and and it's not like something that we we shock speakers and say, oh, by the way, you're going on stage in one minute, go. You know, like they, they know they're coming and they're coming to speak and all that stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, it's just it's just it means so much more when someone like uh, either like tweets or writes a blog post and says, or oh, does a you know does a you know does a does a pat on the back is what we call it, of saying like, hey, thanks so much, I really enjoyed X Y Z or something like that, and. It really makes all that time and effort that goes into it because it's it doesn't you know the amount the hour or the thirty minutes or whatever um, or the whole day workshop whatever that goes into it. There's just a mountain of work that goes into putting on that presentation, right? So I mean, you have to like you know, especially for web stuff which changes all the time, you have to like go back and update it and over and over and over again. Like the adaptive images talk I gave, I've been doing a variation of that for a year or so now. It's totally different than it was like a year ago because things change so yeah. much in the text sphere. So, you know, it's just. Yeah. It's interesting how many people, uh, um, I mean, coaching people on public speaking and engineers to become speakers, there's, uh, there's a lot of stuff to do. I mean, a lot of them are just human things like, oh my God, I, I, I see so many people in the audience, I'm so scared of that. But a lot of them is also like the fraud uh, uh, symptom that people think like, if I don't use uh, a new cool stuff in every second sentence, people in the audience will think I'm outdated and I'm not worthy being on a stage out there. And I think it's just very important for people to understand that uh, uh, that it's not a competition. It's about if you don't uh, if you don't if you're not an expert in something, you can still make a great talk by actually sharing 
your learning experience. Like, how did how did a certain technology become interesting for you? Okay. And that's a great talk. That's a better talk than just saying, here's this cool new technology that I know and you probably will never use in your company. So sharing your, uh, sharing your journey is, is a great way of, uh, of getting, uh, starting to speak. And my biggest trick about being on stage and seeing the whole audience is basically speak to a certain person in the audience with every slide that you do and just look them directly in the eye and only look at that person. And they, these are also the people that afterwards ask questions because you already broke the barrier between you and the audience, which is one of the biggest tasks that you have as a developer. You're not just there to, to wash people over with information uh, as a speaker. You're not there to wash people over with information. You're there to actually tell a story and get them excited to learn things by themselves. And you can only do that on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And if the one-on-one -on -one basis is a glimpse in somebody's eyes for like 20 seconds until you move to the next one, that makes you a better speaker than just a guy that looks at the back of the room because he's scared of the audience. I feel like I, I, I'm taking notes right now on things I should do when I'm teaching. <laughs> There's a few things that uh, I would I would have loved to become a teacher, but then I saw uh, the the curriculum that you have to fulfill, and it was just not worth it because it's uh, our whole education system is broken, and I'm so excited about things like uh, uh, Khan Academy and Coursera and all the things out there that actually allow people to teach themselves things on the web on their own time, mm -hmm. and that that to me is the future of education when. Uh, and there's clips saying that like the internet is this worldwide library that everybody has access to and we can teach ourselves whatever we want and we use it to send pictures of kittens of, to each other. <laughs> but it is really that. I mean, the amount of people that are like, oh, I would love to use HTML5, but I have to wait for a course. And you're like, no, it's the, f the web is full of cool stuff. Just go to HTML5rocks.com, look at MDN, look at all the things and pester people like me. Uh, to ask where there's good resources because we really can teach ourselves a lot of stuff and to be fair, in the 16 years that I've been a web developer I've never seen a, um, a paper at the end of a training or a certification that anybody cared about mm -hmm. like remember there was like there was Macromedia certified web developer and mm -hmm. these kind of things or mm -hmm. I'm also a SQL Server 6 Microsoft certified admin I've never used that ever in my life again I just yeah. needed to have that certification to so that my company could get a certain contract that needed certified developers right so mm -hmm. it's you have all the opportunities as a new developer or as somebody's interested or designer who's interested to do things on the web right now yeah. and learn from the medium that we contribute in Right. And that was completely different at radio or TV as well, because there you had to go to courses because nobody told you the secrets. Right. And on the web, we're really bad at keeping our secrets. We just yeah. share them. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the beautiful things that I love about our industry is that uh, uh, I went to my first conference years ago, and I walked out. I was, it was like in San Francisco. It was at the Moscone Center. And I walked out. I was like, man, this is just so awesome, uh, the sharing information. And it, was, it was just like just an adrenaline shot. And I walked out, and then on the other side, because there's like two halves of Moscone, there's like east and west, they were having a plumber's convention. And <laughs> nice. I was like, wow, that is got to be a depressing convention. And you just know that they're not really sharing secrets. You know, they're not sharing how to build a better, uh, you know, plumbing widget or whatever from one company to another, where you, know, you, where you just come from a conference where it's just like, yeah, this is how I did it. Uh, you know, <laughs> like, you know, this is how I built this website with this. And I was like, Man, this it's it's a totally uh, unique thing, and that's you know one of the things I 
you know, I think we talked about it just um, made earlier is that, you know, like the view source button is, is getting kind of hidden in from people a little bit more so than it was like 20 years ago. So I feel like it's not going to help people to, to get back into our industry, you know, to, to just like happenstance. Like, cause like there's so many people that we just see that, uh, you know, that they were in a band that they had to make websites, you know, they kind of get, they fell into it sort of thing. So I feel like, you know, there's, there, that indirect path to web design is, is, is um, hard, but also um, what I love is that information is everywhere. And if you just, you just have act on it. I think the, 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 the uh, that's, that's certainly true. The, the, we, we, we make much more optimized code through like build scripts and things like that. So looking at view source of Gmail, for example, doesn't make any sense. But at the same time, we also, uh, and I'm, I, I hope that what I've done with the developer evangelism handbook and with the success that Yahoo had with the with the program, that we got other companies into sharing much more as well. And you see it at Google, you see it at Facebook, you see it at Twitter. That I mean, Bootstrap is something that Twitter just did and threw out, and now everybody uses it. And nobody asks them to do it. There's no money in them for it, but it actually means that developers use their stuff, which makes it easier for them to hire people. Because they already use the things that other people do. That's why YUI was open source as well, or is open source. Um, what I what I think is that view source moved to GitHub. Like uh, instead of just being in the browser and being the final end product, we share the uh, the components as well, and the same in the design with Dribble and these kind of things. We actually we share our uh, we share our toys, we share our building blocks rather than only the final products as well, and that's a good evolution of it. And I think we should do more and more and more of that. That rather than having people randomly find out about the web, we just share how we did it. And as you you can find it out anyways, there's no way to protect it. So you might as well share it from the beginning and give the context as well, rather than people looking at your source code and saying like, why did uh, Google use this horrible HTML? There's a reason for it. They didn't just want to hurt HTML, but the reason has to come out somehow. What would you? I just want to switch gears a little bit more, but just as a as an evangelist, I mean, you, you talked about how like you had the skill sets and you wanted to do something. Uh, definitely than being, being a manager. Um, how, what would you say someone who wants to be an evangelist uh, do it? Like, would you say like, no, <laughs> so would you like, uh, what would you t- recommend people to, um, if they were to become an evangelist, w- w- what would they need to do? Throw yourself out there as much as possible. Go to all the good mailing lists, go to events, uh, uh, go to unconferences, give talks in your own company, uh, as long as it takes to actually become confident, more confident in it and more interested in it as well. Mm-hmm. One of the things I introduced at Yahoo, which anybody can do in any company, I'm quite sure, mm-hmm. except for like outsourcing companies or something like that, is uh, lightning talks that I said every Thursday at na- at 11.45 to, to noon, we're going to do uh, every engineer who wants to say something can do that by doing it in the following format, like five-minute presentation, here's something that happened in one of our products, five-minute presentation, here's what I did to fix that issue, and five-minute discussion if we want to document it and make it a best practice or not. So instead of just saying like, oh, come up with a speaking uh, topic, that already means that you're in uh, that you're in your knowledge zone. You're already happy about it and you already have a success factor because you fixed something in a live project. So you don't talk about something weird or, or, or like uh, uh, hypothetical. You actually talk about your experience already. And I've got a lot of people that are now speaking at events and were back then just engineers that said they could never do it. So that's a good opportunity. Um, 
just getting used to speaking in front of other people is a very important thing. So one thing we did do as well was PowerPoint karaoke. So every Friday we would get <laughs> some news in and basically download random PowerPoints from the web and people have to present these without knowing what the next slide is going to be. Yeah. So that one actually teaches you to just not care about your slides much and actually know that you that whatever goes wrong on stage you could deal with summer, so, so, uh, sooner or later. So that's a great opportunity and basically going to meetups and learning from other people. Another thing that I coach, uh, that I tell my people when I'm coaching is like look at a lot of good talks and analyze them in effect. Like see like what did you like most about that one and what kind of uh, rhetoric device or what kind of information did the, user, uh, did the speaker give that inspired you. And also learn from the mistakes that people made. What did you hate about that talk and why? how would you do it differently so you don't hate it? So that's another very important step for people to realize that I don't want to be that sales guy that actually pushes my product in the face of people. That's why I know I would never come want to come across as that person. So that's something that that helps you forge your own speaking style or your own presenting style or your own writing style in this case as well. And another big one is uh, recording yourself and listening to yourself. It's a very terrible thing to do. Oh yeah, I totally agree with that. You, you, you don't sound the way you think you sound because uh, your head vibrates when you talk. So internally, you sound much deeper than you really are. And uh, the outside persona that you actually, when you see yourself on video, this is what people judge you in. So make sure that you start loving that person as well and make sure that you're aware of what you're projecting and not just how you think you project. So that's the that, that's a big thing to do. So I, that's why I record every single one of my talks. And then when I go to the gym on the cross trainer, I listen to my talks and see what I can do better next time. And I'm my worst critic. I mean, if somebody else criticizes you, you go into the defense. You just like start uh, shooting against that person. But if you criticize yourself, it's rather stupid to shoot against yourself. So make sure that you learn all the mistakes that you do and get better before people point them out to you. Yeah, it's 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 um it's something I'm really bad at is just that that whole self critique issue because like after I do a talk I just I want to get away from it as fast as possible like <laughs> lo- like I just let, left the bomb right here like oh my god sorry guys I gotta get going I gotta get out of here but um but yeah but it's that that whole um not, I guess not self critique but just uh, just realizing what 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 could be better and what 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 could be more awesome and some of that so and definitely telling a story goes a long way to, yeah uh, to helping people. Um, to helping attendees like know like okay I can follow this for a while and know it and so and jokes don't hurt either and not yeah not being afraid I mean don't har- don't try to copy anybody else's if you're not a funny person then don't make jokes and uh, <laughs> the worst is when people explain their jokes after they fell flat uh-huh. <laughs> to really avoid. <laughs> Another thing is also to get speaking engagements like, uh, yeah, unconferences are a great opportunity, of course, because everybody speaks. But I found as well, when I know something about a certain technology that I write a blog post about or something or people find it on Twitter, uh, you can offer companies to do brown bags. A lot of companies uh, do that now that during lunch break, they would basically get a speaker in or somebody in to talk about a certain technology and people just bring their food and let's sit there and listen to you. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not as exciting as speaking at a conference, but it gives you a lot of uh, opportunity to actually rehearse and actually learn about your your way to talk to different audiences. And 
I've have yet to find companies that are actually saying no to that, especially when they're mid-level, smaller agencies that want to keep their engineers up to date but don't have money to coach them or don't have money to send them to conferences. Yeah. They're very open to uh, people coming in and giving technical talks. Yeah, most definitely. Like I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think a lot of companies were, were open to that. Just because it takes for like, you know, I think I've done research for this for this conversation. Like uh, one of the things that um, someone's asked about, like about this industry, is like, yeah, we also we, we share everyone's secrets, if you will. Like we share like there's GitHub, uh, of course, blogging and all this of that. But there's just a lot of information that's generated um, out there, and it's hard to keep on top of it. And so. By definitely like doing something like a brown bag lunch or something like that, or um, doing that, just it helps companies, you know, train their employees, right? So it's it's definitely knowledge triaging is a very very hard task right now. It's like there's so much information out there, and uh, and knowing what is good and what is just loud mm. is something that a lot of companies don't understand. So I mean, I've given a few. Uh, tips, uh, uh, talks internally in companies as well, how to actually use the social web and how to find the things that matter and how to write a newsletter for your engineers internally that actually uh, that actually gets the gist of the best things out there every every week rather than having people randomly surf and try to find it and waste time that way. So, so what would you recommend for knowledge triage? Um, RSS readers. It's to me the best thing out there. It's just uh, uh, you subscribe to the thing and then you get it sent to you and you don't have to go to the site and click through things. And you basically, in the morning, I've got I've got about 3,000 subscriptions that I used to have in Google Reader. Now I've got it in Feedly. Mm-hmm. And I go through that every morning in like 45 minutes and that's where I find these 600 things that I put on Twitter. And people are always like, whoa, where do you find them? <laughs> RSS readers. And that's a very simple way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And because Twitter is good, but it's very noisy. It's very hard to to find people, and it's also the new SEO. There's far too many people on Twitter just trying to promote their companies and not really making any sense. I mean, I'm in this I'm this fine uh, I'm in this uh, fancy hotel in New York right now, and this has this massive pool which is just for standing around and drinking, not really swimming. And the amount of uh, amount of people in swim gear and bikinis that stand in the lift and give each other business cards that they are actually social media experts is stunning. It's the new SEO or the new advertising that's going on there. So Twitter and Facebook are great for sharing with your friends, but for information gathering, it's not that easy. Because uh, I think the, the pressure in those places to be the most important person is far too high. So uh, comments you get on Facebook or comments you get on Google Plus are always like a veiled attempt to make for the, of that person to sell themselves as an expert as well. Whereas RSS feeds, you don't expect feedback. You just put the information out. And these are the people that already went past that stage of being better than other people. They just throw things out and see what sticks. And that's normally the best information to get. Awesome. So do you like Feedly as a replacement for Google Reader? Yeah, definitely. It does a good job. It it has a few problems with caching at the moment. So a lot of old items show up, but that's just teasing problems, I guess. Yeah. it's, it was just a sad, sad moment when it killed, and I wrote a blog post about it because Google Reader to me is a power tool. It's a power tool for power users. Yeah, you cannot say it was not a success because no, not everybody used it. It's like saying like, yeah, this this uh, this forklift wasn't wasn't a success in the market when people buy cars. Yeah, it's a different tool for different markets. Yeah, it seems like Google wants a grand slam with every product now, and that's not 
the Google that we grew up with. So, you know. As an engineer, I also have to say this was like a nine-year-old project. There was always a fifty, a twenty percent project. So I'm quite sure the infrastructure of Reader was not up to scratch in, in terms of security and in terms of performance to what they need to have now with Google Plus. Oh yes. So the problem is, as a company like Google, you cannot say we're shutting something down because it was insecure. Mm -hmm. That would be bad press. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what the final decision was, but I think the infrastructure was just too hard to shift over to what they're doing now. Mm -hmm. I like Google+. Plus. I just think it's, uh, uh, it's trying too hard to put too many things in right now. Yeah. For example, the image sharing on Google+, Plus is amazing. That I just take pictures and they automatically show up in my feed and then I say, yes, put them live. Yeah. It's super handy, rather than having to upload them by hand somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Well, that's only with an Android phone, right? Or, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. Sad, sad trombone over here, but uh, <laughs> with my iPhone over here. Um, cool. I think that's a good time to, to wrap up until that. So yeah, um, definitely sad about Google Reader, but um, <laughs> but I'm using Dig right now, and I'm I'm not really too like keen on the Reader Dig for Dig right now. So I don't know. <laughs> so Sam, do you use like Feedly or? I'm not using anything right now. I have the longest uh, bookmarks on my. Chrome browser right now that it's like I will sign up for something once I read everything in that bookmark list that oh, says read me. Oh mm. yeah, it'll never happen. No, <laughs> never. Cool. So it's quite bizarre that Dick came back to say like I do something like that. It's just like it's the attack of the zombies or something. It's just bizarre. <laughs> uh, well, they they're they're still there. They're not what they were, but uh, not to knock them or anything. But they're you know they're different than what they were, but. I thought it was a good play for them. Uh, they just get to put their dig articles up front. Yeah, it was very um, clever. It was a clever marketing move to do it at the right time. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm hoping that the second wave of uh, replacements for Google readers are like a lot better, and or hopefully, I don't know. Hopefully, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to check out Feedly. I've been kind of like uh, on the fence about checking them out, but um, I will. Cool. Um, one thing we always ask people before we wrap things up is. Uh, what one thing are you interested or passionate about right now? Um, in terms of technology, I think the, the thing that will make the main differentiator is WebRTC and uh, Web Components. Yeah, why is web that? Components basically will be the thing where we can build massive interfaces that are not slow because we're actually tying into the rendering of the browser rather than simulating rendering on top of the browser. Mm -hmm. And WebRTC is basically one-on-one -on -one peer connections in the browser rather than having to go over slow HTTP and with lagging servers in between. Mm -hmm. So there's lots and lots of stuff coming that way that's moving in, in new directions. And in terms of design, I'm super excited that people go understand now that different devices have different resolutions and we have to find uh, uh, solutions for that. I, I think the simpler designs that we're going for, the flat designs, mm -hmm. It's a bit of fatty the way it is right now, so the way people overdo it. Mm -hmm. But I, 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 I like that we went back from the drop shadows, uh, 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 like bevels on everything yeah. and fake nature things. <laughs> that never felt right to me. If something looks like leather, it should feel like leather. And as, as it cannot feel like leather on the web, don't do it. Right. Yeah, it, it felt like some people were like, um, I, I don't know. I, I knew I, somebody had passed me by when like websites looked like uh, Photoshop masterpieces. And like, where they like filters, and like they just spent like all day composing. Nice. Yeah, I'm like, that's great. However, <laughs> is it usable? Like, 
<laughs> like, is it people are actually like click on things? And stuff? Remember, I mean, it, it, it looks great. Let me not get wrong. But pretty old tutorial sites like Doc Ozone and oh, like, uh, these kind of things. Like, here's how to make a bevel button in only 450 steps in Photoshop 4. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like going back to this and uh, uh, and putting it just into an abstraction. Now, now we do a, a jQuery plugin that does the same thing. Yeah. It's it's good that we uh, that we have bad connectivity as well. That's another thing that I hate uh, as a user, mm -hmm. but I like as a developer that uh, that the mobile space is just not steady. It's not a steady flow of information, a steady connectivity. Mm -hmm. So people have to learn to be clever about making their apps work offline and uh, uh, and caching and triaging information coming in. And we have to be much more clever about what we send to the end user because we just cannot expect them to download these six hundred fonts because we just think they're beautiful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it, if you want a beautiful web page, you'll wait till 600K is downloaded. Jeez. Can't believe that. <laughs> cool. How can people find you on the, on the web and the internet? Easiest is on Twitter, CodePoet, C-O-D-E-P-O number eight. Um, bring a lot of time because I tweet a lot. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I have all the links that I tweet also on Pinboard with okay. the same name. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to follow me and just see the links that I tweet about, you can go through that. Mm -hmm. And christianheimer.com is the blog and hacks.mozilla.org and MDN is where I write documentation. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. It was a pleasure. A pleasure for me as well. All right, cool. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a lovely day. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.